I hear and I forget. I see and I remember. I do and I understand. I understand and I embrace the void. I find this void quite calming, actually. It's like, this time the Xanax took me. Your sense of self is crumbling and it's taking the void down with it. It's like I'm in a black void, trying to reach the news story. This concept of morality is a very interesting human characteristic. What is real? How do you define real? If you're talking about what you can feel, what you can smell, what you can taste and see. Warning, this podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like they're people. Welcome, friends, to episode 122 of Embrace the Void, where the way is dark and full of absurdities. I am your host, Aaron, and my guest this week is honestly a pretty intimidating level expert on non-Western philosophy. Uh, I do my best to squeeze as much information as I can out of him in the time that we have, but there's clearly a lot there, and I'm sure we'll have to come back around for seconds at some point. So in the meantime, let us commence with our weekly ritual. My guest this week is Brian Van Norden, the James Monroe Taylor Chair in Philosophy at Vassar College and a leading scholar in Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism. Brian, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. Thank you so much for coming on. I um, We touched base, I think, originally on Twitter, and then in sort of a perfect example of the small world that is non-Western philosophy, I realized that I had studied uh, Confucian philosophy using your book in Matt McKenzie's philosophy class over at Colorado State University, so I thought it was fun that we are uh, finally getting to chat in such a world. I know, it really is a small world, especially when you're doing comparative philosophy. Yeah, and I, I want to talk to you some today about the nature of comparative philosophy as well as pumping you for information on Confucius in particular. Um, so I mentioned that you've, you wrote the, the readings in classic Chinese philosophy, but you have a sort of prolific amount of writing that I, I find very impressive. And I wanted to start actually by talking about your book, uh, Taking Back Philosophy, a Multicultural manifesto. I'm curious sort of what the thesis is of this book. It sounds a little culture war, which, you know, is something we often chat about on this show. Is it sort of a deliberate kind of foray into philosophical culture war? Yeah, it it started with a, uh, I ran into uh, Jay Garfield, which Mm -hmm. is uh, Buddhist philosophy um, at Smith College. And we were together at a conference and he just said in passing that philosophy departments that don't teach any non-Western philosophy should just rename themselves departments of Anglo-European philosophy <laughs> instead uh-huh. of pretending that they had they were really teaching philosophy in general. And I said, well, that's, that's a really good point. You know, why don't we write an editorial about that? And so we wrote an editorial together and we thought, well, it's a long shot, but let's see if the New York Times wants it. They, they published it. 
And it was really controversial. There were a number of very positive comments on it, mm-hmm. uh, but also a lot of very negative ones. And uh, the, the editorial is, uh, if philosophy won't diversify, let's call it what it really is. And it, mm-hmm. it basically made this point that if departments aren't going to teach Chinese or Indian or African or indigenous American philosophy, they should just call themselves departments of Anglo-European philosophy. And we got some people saying, uh, uh, come on, uh, let's uh, not pretend that other cultures are as good as Anglo-European culture. One, <laughs> the opening person, gambit, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. One person said, would you really want to fly in a plane built with non-Western mathematics? And um. my response was, yeah, actually, I'll only fly in a plane that uses non-Western mathematics. There's this thing called Arabic numerals. They've <laughs> been kind of catching on. Yeah, I kind of want that zero on the dial, I feel like. The zero thing that was you know, developed in India, that's kind of, you know, it's kind of big now. I think it's going to catch on. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so there was a, a lot of controversy about it. And then Columbia University Press contacted us and said, uh, would you guys be interested in writing a book on this topic? And Jay was overcommitted, but he agreed to write the foreword to the mm-hmm. book if I if I would write the book. And so I did. It came out. And it's I've been very gratified. It's got a lot of attention. Uh, it's uh, been translated into Chinese, and it'll mm. be coming out. Uh, the Chinese edition will be coming out later this year. Um, and articles about it have appeared in you know Spanish, French, German, Latvian, you, you name it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and again, the reaction's been, there've been a lot of positive reactions to it, but also a lot of negative reactions. And part of what I do in the book is I explain that when Europeans first encountered Indian and Chinese philosophy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, in the, uh, like the, the 17th and then the 18th century, they immediately recognized it as philosophical. And they, mm-hmm. the first translation of the Analects the sayings of Confucius into an Indo-European language was a, a Latin edition, Confucius Sonorum Philosophus, which hmm. means Confucius the Chinese philosopher. And that was done by Jesuits with extensive training in Western philosophy. And so they thought it was obvious that Confucius was a philosopher. And likewise, when people encountered Indian philosophy. They initially thought it was obviously philosophical. Uh, but then what happened was as uh, Western imperialism developed, people needed a rationalization for why it was okay to exploit uh, and dominate uh, people in other parts of the world. And pseudoscientific racism developed mm-hmm. so that uh, by the time you get to Kant, Kant is saying – and this had a lot of influence, he's saying very casually and very confidently that non-whites are not capable of doing philosophy. Right. And, and Kant actually, uh, we actually have his his lectures on this topic, and he said he ranked the races hierarchically, and he said uh, Indians and Chinese, he said the Indians look like philosophers, but <laughs> they're, they're incapable of philosophy, and he said the Chinese have not advanced a single step from where they were thousands of years ago. And then he said that at people of African descent could only be trained to be servants. And he yeah. said indigenous American people, he said, were infertile. 
and didn't speak much and were incapable of abstract thought. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I knew that I knew that Kant was canceled, but I think that's a good reminder of all the very many reasons. Yeah, um, and I it's ironic because in terms of epistemology, I'm actually think of myself as kind of a neo-Kantian, mm-hmm. and so I want to throw out the parts of Kant. I don't think we have to the parts of Kant that are insightful. Right. And when it comes to Western ethics, I'm very sympathetic to Aristotle, even though Aristotle um, thought that there were natural slaves. Yeah. And all- that women, Aristotle literally said that a woman is a deformed man. Yeah, we had Aristotle on the show last episode, basically explaining why he thinks those sorts of things. So, <laughs> um, yeah, very, very well versed with that. And this is yeah. what I think is um, surprising, though. Right? Well, first of all, it's it's it's. It's, it's, it's interesting. I didn't know the first part of your story that like there was a period where this was treated as good philosophy Absolutely. because I think um, my experience coming into this conversation as an undergrad, you know, in the past 10 years or so was that, you know, you don't you don't have the out, outright racism, I feel like, of the Kant kind of way of putting it. But you did still have a kind of lingering feeling that a lot of this philosophy is tainted by religion and belongs more in a religious studies department a lot of the time, or that, I mean, I, I think I feel like I've started to see, and I'm curious what you think about this, I've started to see some change in this, that like there is sort of increasing recognition, usually via like a a rude kind of correspondence method where like if you can find a text in Buddhism that looks a lot like Hume, all of a sudden the Buddhist text is treated as more philosophically rigorous or something like that. Is that how you feel like things have gone? Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a complicated story. Um, Peter KJ Park is an intellectual historian and he wrote a, a, a great book that I'm very reliant on called Africa, Asia and the history of philosophy. Hmm. And he points out that uh, prior to around the time of Kant, there were actually only three dominant views about the origin of philosophy. And he, he goes, looks at numerous textbooks and just documents this beyond any reasonable doubt. He says, the dominant views prior to around the time of Kant were that philosophy had its origin in Africa, um, for, which is kind of suggested by, by Plato. The other dominant view was that philosophy started in India, and from India it migrated to Greece. And then I'm sure you can imagine what the third view is. The third view is that India and Africa both independently developed philosophy, and mm-hmm. both of them gave it to Greece. Right, because it's right in the middle. <laughs> exactly. So, so the the notion that philosophy started in Greece but, and that that was an independent development, this was actually like a weird kook view until hmm. around the time of Kant. But then Kant and the Kantians rewrote the history of philosophy to make it this process of the the philosophical tradition starting in ancient Greece and then gradually groping its way towards Kant's critical idealism. Mm-hmm. And as you point out, most, I mean, I was overwhelmingly, most people in contemporary philosophy are not explicitly racist, but they wouldn't endorse the kind of racial determinism that Kant did, but they accept the fruits of that racism, which mm-hmm. is the uncritical assumption that there isn't any philosophy outside of the the, the Anglo-American tradition. Or if there is, it's just people doing Anglo-American philosophy in Africa or China or India. Mm-hmm. 
when I started in, in philosophy, I actually, one of the reasons I went into Chinese philosophy, I was interested in it uh, because I was studying Chinese language and I was also studying philosophy and I wanted to combine those interests. But I naively thought, you know what I'll do is I'll go into Chinese philosophy and there's so few people doing that. I'll be guaranteed a job. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just going to, you know, be like, oh, wow, a guy who actually does Chinese philosophy and reads Chinese, it'll be super easy to get a job. And when I went to graduate school, uh, at that point, there were only two top graduate programs in in the U.S. that had anybody mm-hmm. uh, on the faculty who did Chinese philosophy. And then, uh, but even now, only about 10% of all doctoral programs in the United States have anyone who does Chinese philosophy. Only about 5% of doctoral programs in the United States have anyone who does Indian philosophy. Only about 5% have anyone who does African philosophy. And two, not 2%, but two doctoral programs in philosophy have someone who does the philosophy of the indigenous people of the Americas. Wow, and and again, that's just the it's the inheritance of the fruits of Kant's racism, even among people who wouldn't buy the the racial determinism of, of Kant's thought. Mm-hmm. But I, I do think I think you're right. Things are starting to get better. So as I say, I started out very naive, and then I ran into this just brick wall of resistance uh, of people to even admitting there was such a thing as Chinese philosophy. Uh, and I can't tell you how many times people have said, uh, oh, I've never read any Chinese thinkers, but there isn't any Chinese philosophy, right? It's like, well, how do you know there isn't any if you admit you haven't read any of it? Such a, it's just such a weird position at this point, like, to say to say that there isn't. I mean, not. I mean, because, I, I, again, like, I think I could understand someone saying, oh, it's maybe it's underdeveloped or it's overly religious or it's it's too poetically phrased and not analytic enough or something like that but to say it's just not philosophy just seems it'd be like saying continental philosophy is not philosophy which i guess some analytic philosophers do want to do at this point yeah and it's but it's and it raises this issue because some colleagues have said well brian why do you have to talk about this in terms of structural racism or Mm -hmm. late racism in the tradition and what i say is well look Suppose someone said, hey, look, I discovered there's this really interesting philosophical school of Swiss thinkers who have just really been ignored by mainstream philosophy. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm writing a book about them and they're really interesting. Can you imagine anybody saying the Swiss? Well, the Swiss don't do philosophy. I mean, right. okay, they got that neat cheese with the holes in it and the cuckoo clocks. But come on. I mean, and I've got Swiss friends. Don't get me wrong. But there just isn't any Swiss philosophy. No one would ever say that. But <laughs> Stick to chocolate. Have, exactly, yeah. But they have no compunction about saying, oh, no, I, I haven't read any Chinese thinkers, but I know they're not philosophical. I haven't read any uh, Indian thinkers, but I know they're not philosophical. And mm-hmm. so there, I think you, you have to explain why people feel comfortable saying that. And I think it is this structural racism. It's not an explicit you know, mm-hmm. Kant thought, but it explains why they did it. But I have noticed in the last few years uh, the beginnings of a change where undergraduates, uh, graduate students, and even, you know, some assistant or, or more senior professors are increasingly open-minded 
to the possibility that there really is philosophy in China and they want to learn about it and they want to learn about the indigenous Indian philosophical tradition. So I, I think we're starting to finally get a sea change in this area. And so I'm more optimistic now than I have mm-hmm. been for a long time. So let me ask you then, if we're sort of on the cusp, hopefully, of some transition, how do, how should we be talking about this stuff going forward? Is it still useful to group things in, you know, Western or non-Western? Is, are there other kinds of groupings that you feel like would be more useful? Do these categories track anything of value? Or is it like, other than explaining the history of why this hasn't been addressed, should we be moving towards a time where it's just all called philosophy? Well, I, I think, I mean, there's a couple of things to be said. I mean, one thing is in my, my book, Taking Back Philosophy, I offer a, a characterization of what philosophy is for us now. Mm-hmm. And, and I point out there's really no way you can define everything that has ca- been called philosophy or cognate terms in history, because philosophy has just been so many different things. Philosophy has been physics. Philosophy mm-hmm. has been mathematics. Philosophy has been uh, astrology really was a part of philosophy uh, for certain periods in, in Western history or even in, in Chinese history. So there's no one term that's going to cover all and only what's been philosophy in the West. But I think if we say, what is philosophy for us now? Philosophy is the field in which we argue about topics that we agree are important to human life but we don't agree about the methodology for how to solve them. So uh, physics become, has become a separate field because physicists, at least when they're doing what Thomas Kuhn would call normal science, agree about the standards for resolving a disagreement in physics. Same thing with chemistry, biology, mathematics. But in philosophy, we're dealing with issues like ethical disagreements or the status of ethics or the existence of God – where we agree the topics are important, but we don't agree about the methodology for resolving them. And that's part of what we argue about in philosophy. And if we, if that's what philosophy is, then when we look at other cultures, we find other cultures are dealing with recognizably similar or the same issues about the nature of morality, the nature of personal identity, the nature of mind in relation to body. Uh, the ultimate metaphysical structure of the universe, the basis of, of knowledge. These are clearly things that we're finding in, in these other cultural traditions. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it's, it, it's clear they're doing philosophy. Now, how to categorize it, um, based on my, my current level of knowledge, which you know I'm always learning new things, and so I could, uh, I, I could be convinced that this is wrong, but I, I think we could say, well, there's Anglo-European philosophy, which has a long tradition, and although it's been influenced by other traditions, there is a, an ongoing dialogue within Anglo-European thinkers that constitutes one tradition. Mm-hmm. Likewise, in South Asia, we mm-hmm. have a, a tradition where we have the Orthodox schools that trace their authority back to the Vedas and the unorthodox schools, the heterodox schools like Buddhism. But Mm -hmm. their part, although they've been influenced to some extent by other traditions, they have an internal kind of logic of their own. 
Um, likewise, in China, you've got Buddhist, Taoists, and, then Conf- uh, and Confucians. And the Buddhists, of course, come in from India, but then they develop an indigenous tradition. And so you have a, an mm-hmm. ongoing tradition of philosophical dialogue. So these three traditions, the Anglo-European tradition, the South Asian or Indian tradition, and the Chinese tradition, stand out as having both uh, a robust uh, uh, set of texts, set of thinkers, set of canonical issues. They're recognizably doing philosophy, but they're doing it in interestingly different ways. Mm-hmm. And in Africa and the indigenous people of the Americas, we we don't have one dialogue that everybody's a part of or one tradition that everybody's a part of. We have different traditions which are not entirely, but but more isolated. You know, so there's a variety of different kinds of African philosophies. There's a variety of different kinds, like Aztec, Mayan, uh, indigenous North American philosophies. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's less of one dialogue and more a bunch of uh, separate kinds of traditions, more linked by geography than by being part of a common dialogue. So that's how I divide it up. There's Anglo-European philosophy, South Asian or Indian philosophy, Chinese philosophy or East Asian philosophy, African philosophy, and the philosophy of the indigenous people of the Americas. Yeah, I think that's a really useful way to chunk the map out. And I, I obviously, I, I think your caveats are really important that these traditions feed into each other. And if you sort of, right. if you define a tradition as, you know, did this tradition read somebody else, then they're connected in that kind of way. You had this flow of information back and forth between these traditions for a long time. So, um, but yeah, I do think that is a useful way to chunk it. So with that in mind, the chunks in the like non-European areas, do you feel like they have sort of certain consistent traits and maybe certain consistent like advantages or things that they bring to the table that maybe is a little lacking perhaps even in non-European traditions? Well, I think that one of the interesting things about uh, the Confucian tradition, for example, in, in China and the rest of East Asia Uh, is there's a real focus on ethical cultivation. And Mm -hmm. people like uh, Pierre Hadot remind us the notion that philosophy is a way of life, that it's not a purely theoretical exercise, but it's it's an exercise in finding out the best way to live and then figuring out how to transform yourself into that kind of person – that has a, a robust history in, in the Anglo-European tradition, but it's something that people have lost sight of, I think, at least in the, in the English-speaking world for sure. Hmm. So if you find out that a, an, a philosopher who studies ethics is an unethical person, nobody's really surprised. <laughs> we just don't expect them necessarily. Well, we know the statistics on this at this point. Yeah. We know. Yeah, Eric Fitzgabel at UC Riverside has done some of the the only empirical work on this, and mm-hmm. he's the first to admit that the it's hard to get empirical evidence about whether people are moral. Right. But what evidence he's got suggests that there isn't not a correlation between being a philosopher who studies ethics and being an ethical person. In fact, quite the opposite, possibly, given yeah. that you're increasingly able to justify your behavior, it may make it easier to be immoral. Exactly. And, and, we, and Eric and I, uh, Eric Fitzgabel and I have a friendly mm-hmm. disagreement about this because I think that what a, a, a Confucian philosopher like Zhu Xi, mm-hmm. uh, 12th, great 12th century Confucian philosopher, or Wang Yangming, who's a 16th century 
Confucian philosopher. I think what they would say is, well, look, this doesn't show that ethical education is irrelevant to being a better person or that it can't make you a better person. What Mm -hmm. it shows is that you Westerners are doing it the wrong way. (laughs) And and you shouldn't expect that the way you're doing ethics is going to make you a better person because you have to teach ethics in a different way. Uh, And the way ethics is kind of taught now in the West is it's basically a school for sophists, Mm -hmm. you know, encouraging students to, you know, find uh, ingenious arguments for whatever conclusions they happen to want. Uh, and it's not surprising that's not producing ethical people. But, but one thing, so uh, short, short answer, one thing that I think is distinctive and interesting about the Confucian tradition is a focus on ethics as a matter of being a better person. And I mm-hmm. think some answers Confucian's thinkers offer are original and are things that we haven't thought of in the particular form they've taken in the Confucian tradition. Hmm. And they can remind us that it's okay for ethical aspiration to be part of what being a philosopher is. Yeah, that makes sense. And I want to I want to dive into Confucianism in particular in a little bit more detail here in a second. It's, I mean, it seems like from what I what I gather a lot of what you're describing is similar in some ways to what we think of as like Aristotelian virtue theory. So there, you know, you could imagine Aristotle raising the same critiques of the Western analytic tradition at the moment being so divorced from um, leading a good life. I wanted to ask you one technical question, though, before we get into the Confucians, um, because I, I saw that you'd written a book and you mentioned, you know, learning Chinese and that sort of thing. How important do you personally think it is to be able to read these texts in their original language? So, like, hypothetically, if I'm really, really, really terrible at language, which I am, um, can I get by with well-done translations? I, I think you can. I mean, I think okay. the it becomes kind of, uh, and I'm, I'm not accusing you of this, but I, I have found people who... <laughs> Accuse away, it's fine. Okay, well, I just, I found people who will use this as a cop-out. They'll just say, oh, well, I, you know, I can't study, we can't study Chinese philosophy because I don't read Chinese. And mm-hmm. these are people who would not bat an eye about teaching Descartes uh, or Plato or uh, Aristotle or Kant when they I mean, don't... I Plato wrote it in English though, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> right. I had a I had an honest uh, situation in a Latin class in high school where the teacher spent something like ten minutes trying to explain to the students that this, the the Romans did not in fact think in English and then translate it into Latin. They were well, just okay. thinking in Latin. Yeah. Well, I, I think there's a. Uh, I think I discovered it was probably apocryphal, but mm-hmm. you know this uh, famous line variously attributed to different politicians. Uh, opposing foreign language instruction in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And supposedly some politician said, look, if English was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. Yeah, that's not that's uh, not actually apocryphal. I forget the name, but it, it is actually a real quote. Okay, well, good. that's even a better story then. Yeah, fairly, so. fairly certain. Okay, okay. So, but yeah, so, uh, but I think there's, uh, but yeah, so people, again, uh, it's uh, less and less common for, and I think this is a bad thing in general, but it's less and less common for PhDs to know mm-hmm. any foreign languages. And, and again, people teach Plato all the time in intro-level courses without knowing Greek. They teach Descartes without knowing French or Latin. They teach Kant without knowing German. Um, mm-hmm. I, I have a friend who's a Frege scholar uh, who I know for a fact does not know a word of German. And they just went by with translations. Yeah. So uh, certainly Chinese, since it's not an Indo-European language, 
it's it's farther away from English, uh, which makes translation a little bit more tricky. But as you point out, we've got these anthologies like Ivanhoe and I did readings mm-hmm. in classical Chinese philosophy. Uh, Justin Tewald and I did readings in later Chinese philosophy. There's my textbook, Introduction to Classical Chinese Philosophy, which is keyed to readings in classical Chinese philosophy. So there's plenty of things that people can learn a lot about. And right now, although my Vassar is my my home base, I've been visiting for the last three years. This will be my last year visiting at Yale NUS College in Singapore. Hmm. And there, there's a two-semester uh, sequence required of all first-year students, which is a multicultural introduction to philosophy. And mm-hmm. all uh, first-year students at Yale NUS are required to take a course where they read Plato, Aristotle, Descartes, Hobbes, Nietzsche, Mill, Mengzi, uh, Muozi, Shunzi, Zhuangzi, Wang Yangming, Zhu Xi, they also read uh, the Bhagavad Gita. They read uh, some of the Gita commentaries. They read Gandhi. They read the uh, Nyaya uh, critiques of Buddhism. They read uh, Buddhist philosophy, uh, Shanti Deva, and also the question to King Melinda. And uh, a few of us teaching in the program do know the original languages. And you want someone around, ideally, who mm-hmm. can do that if you have a question. But the people who don't know the languages, they do just fine teaching these things in translation, just like they do just fine teaching Plato in translation or or Kant in translation. That's good to hear. I mean, obviously, given my personal difficulties, I was hoping that was the right answer. But um, I was also – I mean, that is my impression that – you know, you mentioned that you said it's it's sort of almost a bad thing that – PhD programs don't require foreign language, but I see it, I guess, a little bit more as like a division of labor kind of situation where, you know, a lot of us want to work on stuff and we can't learn all of these different languages, but we've gotten to a point now where there's a lot of people who are really well-versed in in translating and that we can rely on them to do that part of the labor seems like an improvement. I I guess, I mean, I'm kind of old school on this. I'm a little bit of an old buddy-duddy because, again, I think it makes a difference if you're getting a PhD – it mm-hmm. seems to me you should know at least one foreign language that is relevant to what you're doing research on. Uh, but I'm not at all saying, if I'm saying just the opposite, that I'm not saying that you need you need to know Chinese to be mm-hmm. interested in Chinese philosophy. You do not. Just like you can be really interested in Plato, think he had really interesting things to say without necessarily knowing classical Greek. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it just it feels to me now like a lot of doctoral programs in the United States, for example, have just completely written off foreign languages completely. And I think Americans have a bad habit of convincing themselves they can't learn foreign languages. Uh, <laughs> and, and in fairness, I think part of the reason is in the U.S. we start teaching foreign languages so late. Yep. Whereas in you know everybody I know from China. It's very rare when I meet someone from China and they don't know several dialects of Chinese. Mm-hmm. And that's just because, of course, they learn the standard dialect Mandarin in school, but in their hometown, they might speak Sichuanese, you know, but then they've got an uncle who knows Hakka. And so they, they can understand Hakka, but they can't quite speak it. And same thing in Europe. I mean, everybody's, you know, I know people who are utterly fluent in English. Uh, and their native language is German, and they also know Italian. So I, I, I'm a little bit of hardcore on this. But the basic point, which is that 
just mm-hmm. like you can teach and love Plato and Aristotle without necessarily knowing classical Greek, so you can teach the great Taoist thinker Zhuangzi and the great uh, Confucian thinker Mengzi at the undergraduate level without knowing Chinese. So mm-hmm. I, I encourage people, go ahead. You learn about those things. Don't be afraid. There's good translations out there. Well, th- that is good to hear. I Maybe I am just the American who convinces himself that he can't learn a foreign language, but I did spend sort of six years in Latin convincing myself very, very thoroughly that I could not, in fact, at least learn one to a degree where it would be useful for me to try to read philosophy in that language. Like, I'm just... It just wasn't working out in that kind yeah. of way. But I, I, I mean, I, yeah, I don't want to get, I mean, too off, yeah, off uh, problem, no but I mean, right, I think a lot of times it's how it's taught. So I was mm-hmm. talking to a student uh, at a conference at Yale and US, and she was saying that she was in a program where they, the way they teach Latin to make it more accessible is they teach it as a living language. Mm-hmm. So they actually encourage you to converse with people in like in Latin. And yeah, I said, we didn't have that. <laughs> you did or didn't? No, not so much. Yeah, and, and it sounds like a great idea. But then on the other hand, she said, oh, it's actually a disaster. I said, why? She said, and I'm, I'm putting it in my terms, but basically the people who had gone to fancy prep schools like mm-hmm. Boston Latin, they were now acting like gatekeepers where they mm. would humiliate people who couldn't speak Latin fluently already instead of using this as an exciting way to make the language seem more vibrant, they uh-huh. were reinstituting old school, you know, kind of class distinctions by like, Oh, you didn't learn to speak Latin in your, before you got to college. Oh my God, that's outrageous. Uh, and I'm not dumping on, I don't know that the people she ran to were from Boston Latin. I'm just saying that's no. a prestigious school where, you know, you could expect to, to know Latin going into college. Wouldn't and it be- so it's, it's, it's unfair. Obviously it's horrible. Yeah. Wouldn't they be learning like church Latin though? Because I mean, we don't. My understanding was in Latin class. It was getting way off field. Sorry. <laughs> like my understanding was in Latin class, we don't know how to pronounce things according to the way the Romans would have actually pronounced them, and that yeah. most of the Latin pronunciation we have comes from the church. Exactly, and and this is it's kind of uh, I mean, it's one of those I think holy war things, you know, where you know some people are like, well, this is the right way to pronounce Latin. You have to pronounce it this way. Right. Like well, it's a dead language. I mean, you pronounce it however you want. Conjugate the verb. Yeah, and and you get and you get some people. Same thing with Chinese. You know, occasionally I'll get students saying, you know, oh well, my my father speaks this dialect, which of course is the dialect that Confucius spoke. Hmm. I gotta be, and I gotta decide: is it worth disabusing this student of this misconception that anybody, you know, still speaks, uh, you know, Chinese in the way that Confucius did two thousand five hundred years ago? That's fascinating. Okay, so I mean, all of this language uh, conversation is a long walk for me to ask you the most important question here, which is: I can never remember. Are we supposed to be spelling Dao with a D or a T these days? What's the either, rule? Either way, so the okay, great. <laughs> doing the T is following the older Wade Giles romanization, mm-hmm. but that was the standard romanization that libraries used and everybody used for I think a hundred years or so. And then when I was uh, in, in high school, they switched over to Pinyin. Mm-hmm. And I, I remember reading an editorial by a librarian who said, and the, the title of the editorial was, You Must Be Joking, where joking was spelled Z H O K I N G. Because you've got to be kidding me, because now everybody's like, okay, China's using Pinyin, we're going to switch over to Pinyin. And so you had to recategorize or recatalog. 
pardon, all these Chinese works. So Taoism with a D is Pinyin. Uh, Taoism with a T is uh, Wade Giles. I'm okay with writing it either way. Just please pronounce it with a D sound because mm-hmm. it's clo- the sound is closer to a D than it is to a T. Okay. When you do your like formal published work kind of stuff, do you stick with the D because that's the, the modern thing now? Yeah, I mean, everybody pretty much uses mm-hmm. uh, now. Um, and so, like, in all my books, that that's what I use. I say, again, if you're a specialist, it's worth learning the way Giles, just in case you have to read an old book and you want to know what you're looking at. But mm-hmm. you can totally get by, like, all the translations I've mentioned, we, those all use pinyin. And if you mm-hmm. decide to learn Chinese, that's what they'll teach you, uh, is that mm-hmm. you'll learn pinyin, so. Okay. Cool. That's that's good information. Um, so, I wanted to get you on because because of my personal proclivities, I've tended to spend most of our time when we've done non-Western things in on the show doing Buddhism and Taoism, as that's sort of the church that I attend. Um, and I was hoping maybe you could fill us in a little bit more on the Confucian side of the map. So, I guess maybe we'd start with like just some basics of like. Maybe the origin story of Confucianism a little bit, the elevator pitch. What are we what are we dealing with here in this particular theory? Right. So Confucianism is a, a philosophy that is very focused on uh, improving government by getting virtuous people into positions of authority. And in order to do that, you need a conception of what it is to be a virtuous person which they describe by saying a virtuous person is one who follows the way, meaning the right way to live and the right way to organize society. And because they want to get virtuous people into positions of authority, they're very interested in techniques of ethical cultivation because they want to figure out how do we make people virtuous so that we can then get them into positions of authority and transform society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so again, a lot of the similar themes that we've seen in um, virtue theory and some of the stuff in Taoism, right? Because Tao means the way. Do they use the exact same word as yeah, well? Yeah, exactly. Okay. They're both Confucians and Taoists. They're both looking for the way. They're just mm-hmm. reading about what the way is. And so, yeah, go ahead. No, I was, just, I was just curious if you could frame that disagreement about how they how they see the way differently. Well, it's it's a little complicated because. One thing specialists like to say is that Lao Tzu, the, mm-hmm. the supposed founder of Taoism, didn't know he was a Taoist. <laughs> and that's because Taoism as an organized movement didn't exist in the classical period where you have Confucianism and uh, then you've got these seminal figures who are retrospectively identified as Taoists, Lao Tzu, the supposed mm-hmm. author. The Tao Te Ching, and then Zhuangzi, mm-hmm. the, author, the supposed author of the eponymous Zhuangzi. Yeah, we it, did a good episode on him a little while ago. He's fun yeah, stuff. Yeah, very cool, very cool. And then, but then later, what happens is in the Han Dynasty, after this period, a Taoist religion starts, and mm-hmm. they they go back and they reinterpret the tradition as if there had been this Taoist school. So, if you kind of say, "What's the Taoist school about?" Well, there never really was a school. There's a religion. Uh-huh. But it, there wasn't really a school. But one way of thinking about it is, uh, I mean, I think Zhuangzi is is maybe the most interesting Taoist philosopher, even though more people in the West have heard of Lao Tzu. But Zhuangzi uh, uh, basically asks us to, to question our assumption 
that uh, the values that we take seriously are universal either for human beings or that those values are somehow grounded in the structure of the universe. Is it kind of postmodernist, maybe a little bit, a little anti-realism there? Well, you could. I I only hesitate to describe it as uh, postmodernism because I think, although Mm postmodernism is really interesting, I think there has to be modernism for there to be postmodernism. In a way, that's kind of a critique of postmodernism. That in a way, it's parasitic on the modernist tradition. Mm -hmm. But I I, and there's. Well, would you say that the Taoism is parasitic in a similar way on the Confucian tradition? In a in a sense, or it's parasitic, but the the Taoists are critical not just of the Confucians; they're critical of other schools too, like the Moists, mm-hmm. who are anti-Confucian consequentialist school. Mm-hmm. And, uh, some people, when they read Zhuangzi, they get very excited about the arguments in Zhuangzi that seem what we would technically call in philosophy anti-realist. That is to say, and your, your audience may already know this, but an, an ethical anti-realist is someone who says, look, there aren't real facts out there in the world that ground or justify our ethical claims. Right. And so an anti-realist might say something like, well, look, ethics is just a matter of humans expressing their feelings about certain actions, but it's not a report the anti-realist says ethics is not a report of facts in the universe independent of human judgment. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly part of what Zhuangzi says. And some people see that in Zhuangzi and they get really excited and that's all they see in Zhuangzi. But uh, I think Zhuangzi is interesting because Western anti-realists, people like uh, Gilbert Harmon or J.L. Mm-hmm. Mackey, they seem to think that there's no real cost to being an anti-realist about ethics. They're like, well, you can still do ethics and you mm-hmm, can mm-hmm. have the values you had before. It's just that you don't think these ethical values correspond to anything in the world independently of human judgments. So it's kind of a cost-free moral right. realism. I like but where I, you're going with this, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I think Zhuangzi doesn't see it that way. And I think Zhuangzi is right. Zhuangzi says... No, if you take really seriously the notion that there are no ethical values, that's going to make a difference to how you think about your ethical values. And so mm-hmm. you'll take less seriously the a commitment to benevolence. But on the other hand, you'll also take less seriously your commitment to things like your bodily health mm. or political success or wealth. Um, someone, I think it might've been C.S. Lewis said the problem with cynical people is they're not consistent because Mm. people want to say, oh, ethics is bunk, but wealth and power and bad things, those are real. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) You take seriously, but Zhuangzi says, no, if you don't take values seriously, you don't take any values seriously. So the fact that your body, he vividly describes a sage whose body is rotting Mm-hmm. And it, maybe it's leprosy, maybe it's some kind of cancer. Uh, and someone says, well, does this bother you? And the sage says, why should it bother me? I mean, heaven has decided to gnarl me up and bend me and transform me in certain ways. And tomorrow I might be a rat's liver or <laughs> I might be a uh, uh, I might be part of a crossbow that's going to, you know, uh, shoot an owl. 
Uh, who knows? It's going to be an adventure, and I'm just going to enjoy the adventure. So, so Zhuang says he doesn't. He wants us to challenge our assumption that our values are in some way objective, but it's not this hot tub anti-realism. Like, well, who cares? So, what values aren't aren't objective? Hot, hot tub. Oh shit, that's good. Uh, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna steal that from you. That hot tub anti-realism. What's that? I'm going to steal that hot tub anti-realism from you. That's, that's uh, some good yeah, stuff. I, I love that line. I, yeah. I, I don't know if I'm the first to say that, but yeah, I, I love that line. Please do. Yeah. Um, longtime listeners in the show will know that like of the few positions that I'm willing to stake a claim on moral realism is one of them. And I have had lots of anti-realists on the show to discuss this issue. And I'm, I, I'm very satisfied by the idea at least that like, you know, whatever way you break on this question, let's be honest about the costs with going one way or the other. I, I think that, that's right. And I've, I've had the same thing. I mean, there's a, uh, some people call it the so what thesis mm-hmm. about moral realism. So anti-realists will say, well, I mean, maybe there aren't moral facts. So what? Mm-hmm. what? What difference does it make? But I think one of the things that the, the Chinese tradition points out is your motivations and your commitments are not fixed once in your, like once and forever. Mm-hmm. They change depending on what you believe about them. So uh, I, I think I fail a lot as a moral person. I mean, I'd be the first to say I'm a I'm a train wreck <laughs> as a moral <laughs> person. But but I think I'm better than I would be because I think yeah. But there there really are facts about how you should be as a person, and mm. so I try to maintain the motivations I've got that make me a good person, and I feel good about making the sacrifices that are required to be a certain kind of person. And if, if I didn't believe these were moral facts, it's like, well, why not just drop the inconvenient commitments you've got uh, mm. to be a good person? And uh, I, I think it would make – it sh- it ought to make a difference to you whether you think that you're, there's anything grounding your ethical claims. But Zhuangzi thinks it would be liberating because he thinks – again, he thinks if you gave up ethics – you'd also be giving up the worries and the suffering that goes with worrying about being powerful or worrying about being rich or worrying about being healthy. Mm-hmm. So what would Confucianism then, going back to them, have to say about these issues of value realism and how we yeah. ought to act and that sort of thing? Well, I, one thing I think is worth keeping in mind is people – there's a natural assumption to mm-hmm. think, well, if I want to learn about Confucianism – I should go to the beginnings and I should read the Analects of Confucius. Or if I want to learn about Taoism, I should go back to the beginnings and I should read the, the classic of the way in virtue attributed to Lao Tzu. Uh, I think those are interesting philosophical works, but they are really not the first places I would send you. Hmm. The, the analogy I give is I say, going to read Lao Tzu or Confucius to start out is kind of like starting out Western philosophy with Heraclitus and Parmenides. Mm, mm-hmm. Heraclitus and Parmenides are really interesting, but there are so many textual problems and their works are fragmentary and we're not sure what they looked like in their complete form. And, you know, it's, it's just kind of hard going. If you want to learn about Western philosophy, start a little later. Start with Plato and Aristotle. Likewise, if you want to learn about Confucianism and Taoism, I'd say start with Mengzi, the great Confucian philosopher whom I translated, mm-hmm. or Wangza, the great Taoist philosopher, and there's several excellent translations of, of Zhuangzi, including Burton Watson, 
has a great translation with Columbia University Press. My old teacher, Victor Mayer, has a terrific translation of the Zhuangzi. Uh, Hackett Publishing, Brooke Zipporin did a translation of the Zhuangzi. Mm-hmm. And so, so Mengzi, for example, he's a Confucian. He thinks of himself as defending the ideas of Confucius. But he thinks that morality is grounded in certain innate reactions we have. He ultimately thinks these reactions are grounded somehow in the structure of the universe. But I think what's interesting about uh, Mengzi is the suggestion that we human beings uh, innately have a, a, a sense of compassion for the suffering of other creatures. And so Mengzi says, suppose any normal human suddenly saw a child about to fall into a well. Mm-hmm. Any normal human in the situation would have a feeling of alarm and compassion. And that's because it's natural for humans to have this sprout of mm-hmm. Passion for other human beings. Now, if you're a full-blown realist, like a Platonist, or or a, like what Mengzi thought, Mengzi says, "Well, the reason you have this innate sense of compassion is that the universe is teleological in structure, mm-hmm. and so it's got that's been built into you for teleological reasons." But if that's too much for you to bite uh, metaphysically, I think you could just say for evolutionary reasons. Uh, people forget that Darwin was not an ethical skeptic. I mean, Darwin mm-hmm. thought there are good evolutionary reasons why humans develop uh, things like compassion and a sense of loyalty and a sense of honesty because we're pack animals. And we're mm-hmm. just not going to make it unless we have built into us things like compassion. Uh, and I, I sometimes assign to my students an essay by a guy named Trivers called The Evolution of Reciprocal Altruism. Mm-hmm. And he gives like a hard mathematical argument for how things like altruism evolved among pack animals like human beings. So Mengzi's idea that, look, it's built into you, given the kind of creature you are, to have compassion for others, is actually in line with modern developmental psychology and evolutionary mm-hmm. And so I think it's a very attractive kind of view. And... Uh, I think it's interesting because I'm very fond of Aristotle, but Mm -hmm. Aristotle says that you become virtuous by doing virtuous actions, and he says you have to be habituated into virtue, Mm -hmm. but he also says that humans by nature are not virtuous. Right. Neither good nor bad by nature, but made good by habit. Mm -hmm. Exactly. But then it becomes really mysterious to understand, well, wait a second, how do I get to be a good person by practicing virtuous actions if Mm -hmm. I don't start out with virtuous inclinations? And Mengzi answers this question. He says, well, look, Aristotle, what you've missed is that human beings do have these innate but incipient dispositions towards virtue. And so what you're habituating is actions that express these innate but incipient dispositions and strengthen them through exercising them. So I think he's got a solution to the the paradox of ethical cultivation that Aristotle mm-hmm. gives. Yeah, that's fascinating. And it it reminds me a lot of how I try I tend to read Hume these days. I think a lot of folks sort of initially read Hume, you know, they read the Isot stuff and they read him as a sort of you know, the beginning the precursor to anti-realism in the West. But his sense theory work really does lean more towards this idea that you are 
um, constructed to value the right thing, to value things that are valuable, and that he has a, a, a space for the distinction between valuing things that are actually valuable and, and valuing things that are not actually valuable. And so I think that it, and, and that he thinks that like the way we gain knowledge about that is through sensation and our emotional responses to it but that doesn't necessarily make it not real in the way that a lot of folks today think that emotionally gained knowledge is less real in some way yeah and and i think that uh i mean some some people have pointed out the interesting kind of similarities between hume's conception mm-hmm. of sympathy and and mungs's conception of, of sympathy or compassion I here's how I think they might be different, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was very influenced by Alistair McIntyre's uh, insight in his book After Virtue, where he pointed out that part of the the beginning of modernity was the rejection as nonsensical and ridiculous of the Aristotelian conception of the potentiality actuality distinction. Mm-hmm. And, and McIntyre points out in physics that distinction probably had to go, you know, in chemistry and physics, it it was to say things like, well, wood has a potentiality to catch fire. That's not as helpful as for example, the oxygen theory of combustion, which Mm -hmm. doesn't appeal to potentiality and actuality just appeals to like, what do the atoms do when they bond in the presence of energy? Um, But McIntyre points out dropping the notion of potentiality in ethics was disastrous Because they left us with this notion that human beings just are the way they are. And so I think for Hume, Hume thinks, look, there are occasionally hints where Hume will talk about developing your sense of ethics or losing your sense of of compassion. But mostly he seems to think it's just a fixed capacity you've already got. Mm -hmm. And what's really interesting about Confucianism is there's a, a long debate about how do you cultivate these tendencies towards compassion and a belief that human beings are, they really are like sprouts of a plant in the sense that the sprout of an apple tree has the potential to become an apple tree, but it's not Mm -hmm. an apple tree yet. And so every human has the potential to be a sage, but we're not a sage yet. And And and, interesting, I just going to say one last thing about that. The uh, going back to the Zhuangzi thing, uh, Mengzi writes before Zhuangzi, and Zhuangzi the Taoist is a critique is a critic of Mengzi. But mm-hmm. part of what Mengzi says is one of the things that will hold you back ethically is if you become the kind of person who either says morality is a bunch of bunk, a bunch of nonsense, mm-hmm. or if you're the kind of person who says, "Well, morality is nice, but I'm not capable of it." And so Mungza is kind of suggesting, look, there's a cost of saying, look, there really aren't moral facts. It's like, well, mm-hmm. if there aren't moral facts, why should I transform myself into a moral person? You know, yeah. or if I don't have a good nature, well, I guess I, I just have to be born lucky. I have to, I'm not, I wasn't born to be Gandhi. Gandhi mm-hmm. wasn't born to be Gandhi either. You know, Gandhi transformed himself through a long process of, of ethical cultivation. The sages <laughs> did the same thing. Yeah, I, I do think it is all luck, but I, I'm not going to – it's a bit more of a thing to dive into than we have time for here still. So, But I do get what you're saying in terms of the different ways of cultivation. And I want to talk a little bit before we run out of time on what the method is that the Confucians have in mind for cultivating virtue. My understanding is it has something to do with ritual. Is that sort of their central focus or what, what would you say is their their methods? 
Yeah, and so they they talk about a bunch of different methods. And so uh, one of my my teachers, uh, a PJ Ivanhoe, wrote a book, Confucian Moral Self Cultivation. And I, one of the themes of that book is that you see this this dynamic or this dialectic in the Confucian tradition, where uh, there's this saying in the in Confucius, where Confucius says, "Look, if you uh, study but you don't think." you're going to be uh, just lost. Mm-hmm. But if you think without studying, you're going to be in danger. Hmm. And so the idea is just studying without thinking about what it means and what it means for you is just going to give you this confused mat- bunch of facts that don't mean anything to you. But on the other hand, if you think without actually filling your mind with something to think about, then you're going to be in danger because you're going to be thinking you're saying original things when you're not, or uh, as I like to say, I know so many people who say, oh, I I like to think outside the box. And then you talk to them and you realize you're right in the middle of the box. You Mm -hmm. don't know where the box is because you never bothered to learn where the box is. So, So in the later Confucian tradition, then you get this debate where people like Mengzi are really emphasizing thinking and using your own innate sense of morality and trusting your own innate sense of morality, which you have to cultivate, but you know it's it's there within you, a potential, versus people like Shunza, the next major Confucian after Mengzi, who's more like Aristotle and says, look, you're not going to understand at the beginning why what we're teaching you and making you do is important. You just have to have faith that if we habituate you in the right way, at the end of the process, you'll understand. So Mengzi recognizes the importance of studying the classics, but he emphasizes using your own mind on those classics. And Shunza, the next major Confucian, says, well, of course, you have to think about what you're learning. But the main thing is you have to learn because you've got to internalize a bunch of practices and values and concepts that you uh-huh. don't internally. And that so, becomes the dialectic for the rest of the tradition. Which of these are we going to emphasize? Okay, so then – how does the sort of 101 level critique of Confucianism fit into this? The idea that like uh, the Taoists push back on Confucians as being too focused on ritual and structure and not naturalness. Does that come up in the later Confucians or is that in the tradition from the beginning and just becomes one of the branches of the tradition? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, the, the Taoists are, are onto something because if you try to be a good person, it's very easy to fall into the trap of becoming self-righteous or merely pretentious. Mm-hmm. Um, and for Confucians, they're aware that being self-righteous or being pretentious, and they have they have terms to describe these kind of people, and they critique the, the, those kinds of people. But they say, well, yeah, that's that's the danger you're going to have if you try to be a better person. But it's worth the price. You just need to be aware that there are these these things you can fall into. And the the Taoists tend to say, yeah, but you're always going to fall into this self-righteousness. You're always going to fall into this kind of uh, pointless pretentiousness if you try to cultivate yourself in an artificial way. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Confucians are aware of the critique, but for them, it's a risk worth running and you can mitigate it by being aware of the risks Whereas Taoists are more likely to say, you know, you're never going to escape. You're, you're just going to end up becoming a really pretentious, annoying, self-righteous person. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a bad, a, a bad name to morality by trying to be moral. Who are you more sympathetic to in this debate? 
I'm overall more sympathetic to the Confucians. Um, but, uh, to be sure, I, I think having both movements is helpful because it keeps the Confucians on their toes. The mm-hmm. fact that the Taoists are saying, hey, aren't you guys kind of becoming, you know, pretentious and, you know, overly self-righteous? It's that kind of critique is good for reminding Confucians of the dangers of their approach. And, and it is a danger. I mean, uh, people, I, I, I do know people who are really concerned. I mean, we all do. People who mm-hmm. say they're really concerned about virtue and they're just nauseating hypocrites. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're really into being judgmental. But, but in a way, that's why Confucius says, look, the true gentleman is demanding of himself, but lenient towards others. Yeah. And the Tao says a similar thing, actually, right? Um, the sage keeps his end of the bargain, but doesn't expect others to do the same. Exactly. exactly. I, mean, I think that's good advice for all of us. It's like, you know, be more concerned about whether you're being a good person and less mm-hmm. concerned about judging others. And in fact, Confucius actually criticizes one of his disciples for being overly critical of others. Mm -hmm. But there is a paradox here, of course, which is that in criticizing his disciple for being overly critical of others, Confucius is criticizing others. Mm -hmm. That's a little bit of a paradox there. Yeah, it it is. But, but then again, I think it's in, it's also the Confucians would say unavoidable because Mm -hmm. if you're a Taoist who says, uh, you know, Oh, I really hate people who are critical of others. Well, you just did what you said you're not supposed to do. Right. It is it is challenging. Yeah. Um, so um, before we get to the lightning round here at the end, I'm, I want to just tie this back to our modern age. Is there ways in which you feel like Confucianism is still relevant or valuable in the modern age? Any other sort of further takeaways or things that you feel like it helps explain in the modern world that folks might not realize are tied to this? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, I mean, what we've been talking about so far, this issue of, well, can you get to be a better person? Is character something that can change over life? And one example I like to give is, look, we think that people can get better at playing tennis or golf. We think they can eat a more healthy diet. We think that they can get better at appreciating opera or uh, a movies or be a better wine connoisseur. It'd be really surprising if you could get better at all those things, but you couldn't get better at being a good person. Mm-hmm. But that's what a lot of us tend to assume. Um, so I think that's one thing that, that Chinese thought can teach us. Another thing that it's really struck me more in recent years, most of my life metaphysically, I've been attracted to the Aristotelian view that the universe is ultimately uh, composed out of a plurality of independent individuals, or to use the technical jargon of Aristotelianism, independent substances. Mm-hmm. Where, as you know, you know, substance doesn't just mean like stuff in Aristotelian right. thought. It means like a self-subsistent, a subsistent independent thing that has properties of its own, but is not itself a property of anything else. Radically independent. Radically right. independent thing. Yeah, which. And there's a lot of plausibility to that, but both in the Indian Buddhist tradition and in a different way in the Chinese Buddhist tradition, they challenge that. And they say, Mm -hmm. does the notion of independent individuals really make any sense or is everything that exists uh, ultimately dependent on something else? And Mm -hmm. that goes to the point where do you know uh, or do your does your audience know the story of. Uh, the, the the teacher who says that the earth is on the back of four elephants. 
Uh, are you talking about the turtles? The turtles, yeah. Yes, yes, they're yeah. familiar with the turtles. But right. Go ahead. Open on the turtles. What are the turtles on? More turtles. What are the turtles on? All turtles all the way down. Yep. So one of my favorite philosophical jokes. And so some philosophers uh, in both the Indian and the Chinese tradition said, what if things are you know, dependent for their existence if they're grounded in other things and those other things are grounded in other things and it's like that all the way down and there's no ultimate simples. Mm-hmm. I'm inclined to take that more seriously at a me- as a metaphysical view after years of reading and studying Indian and Chinese Buddhist texts that, that make arguments for this, this. So I think that's yeah. a serious metaphysical position worth taking seriously. That's great. Yeah. And we did a Buddhism episode where we talked about codependent arising some. So if folks want to go back and have a listen to that. And this is another thing that I'm pretty much committed to. Like, I I think that morality is real, but selves aren't. Um, And I think that. And and it's an interesting, uh, I mean, and again, maybe you've talked about this in other shows, but Mm -hmm. the way it goes in the Chinese Buddhist tradition is they say, well, everything's dependent for its existence on everything else. So Mm -hmm. you and I are not distinct entities. Right. So I should care about your well-being because you're part of me. Mm-hmm. Yep. In the Indian Buddhist tradition, I think it's more like, well, since there are no selves, there's no reason for giving preference to my suffering over your suffering because mine and yours are illusory concepts. I mean, they're at best useful for pragmatic purposes, but they don't refer to ultimate realities that are independent. Yeah, it's like a combination of, of Parfit's rejection of the self and utilitarianism. And, exactly. Um, yeah. Oh, there's so, there's so much good stuff here. Um, I think we'll have to have you back on at some point to continue with this, but I need to wrap us up, unfortunately, and I want to get us to the lightning round. So, Okay, so maybe you're familiar with this because you've heard the show before, but for yeah. folks who have not, um, the lightning round consists of a series of things. I will ask you whether they are real or not real. You are only allowed to answer that they are real or not real. There is no hedging, no cribbing, no anything of that sort. Um, on the plus side, you don't have to define what you mean by real so that you can certainly hedge later amongst your friends and on the Twitters. Um, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. You feel ready? Uh, as ready as I can get, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is your is your readiness real? <laughs> no. Okay, good start. Uh, the external world. Not real. Not real, okay. Colors. Not real. All right, phenomenal consciousness. Not real. Mm, free will. Not real. Selves. Not real. <laughs> okay, it's going to be one of those games. Genders. <laughs> Not real. Uh, races? Not real. Species? Not real. Mm, morality? Not real. Oh, God. I, thought, I thought we had you after all that set up. Uh, rights? Not real. Okay, knowledge? Not real. Gods? Not real. Okay. Society? Not real. Numbers? Not real. Fictional characters? Not real holes not real chairs not real sandwiches not real science not real natural laws not real okay beauty not real causality not real okay and then the one that i save for the buddhists of the crowd dharmas not real 
Okay, all right, fine. Yeah. Nothing is real. Is there yeah. anything that you would like to add to the list that is real? Well, I was I was just going to say, I, I thought about this because I'd heard you do it with another guest, and I, I thought, well, what should I say to that? And I thought, if I'm going to be consistent following people like uh, Shantideva in the Buddhist mm-hmm. tradition, Nagarjuna, mm-hmm. um, our friend Nagarj, tradition, either everything's not real because everything's dependent on something else, or if we take a Quinean turn and we just say, well, it's real if you quantify over it, then everything's real. Okay, great. So I think that's why I'd actually, I knew in advance, that's what I'm going to say. It's either it's all not real or it's all real. Yep. And I think that's that's a, a plausible position. And it means that you have to say that fictional characters are real if anything is real, which I, I, I appreciate as a position. So. <laughs> All right. Well, Brian, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. Um, do you want to let folks know where they can find you? Uh, yeah, sure. I'm on uh, Twitter as uh, B-R-Y-A-N-V-A-N-N-O-R-D-E-N and also on Facebook as same thing, uh, Brian with a Y, Van Norden. Um, and I have uh, a website, brianvannorden.com, where I have a bibliography of of various kinds of uh, non-Anglo-European philosophy and also a list of my books. Yeah, and I highly recommend Brian's books as a great way to get into some often some challenging material, and it makes it really, really comprehensible. I loved uh, your stuff back when I was using it in my grad program. So thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a lot of fun. All right. Hi, all. Just want to give a special shout out to a bunch of new patrons who we've had join this month. Uh, thanks to... Piotr, Zeus, If You're Happy and You Know It, No You're Not, Buster Benson, Iona Italia, um, Dane Rathbone, Clyde Rathbone, and Dred Zephyr, and Corey Thompson. Thank you all so much for supporting the show, and thanks as always to our $20 tier patrons. Jude Law's Canadian accent in Existence makes my pussy throb. We really got to get to Existence over on Philosophers in Space. Um, Good Morning Camp Quest, Give Me Those Sweet Sweet Utils, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, and most of all, thanks to our top tier Still crushing it, patron Dave Maslich. I really do appreciate y'all so much for helping us uh, keep the dark on. So if you like the show, um, please support it by giving us, if you can, five-star ratings and reviews on whatever podcast app you use. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And support the show financially, if you can, at patreon.com forward slash embrace the void. And remember, you are the void. And the void is you.